Turn with me in your Bible to um, 1 Corinthians 15, if you have it. And then we're also going to be looking at 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. 2 Corinthians 15 and 2 Tim- sorry, 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. So 1 Corinthians 15 says this. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. But really, hear these, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, if you will turn over to 2 Timothy verses, or chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, Verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, rebuke, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. This is the word of God. As you guys know, we're going through this, um, this statement on Christology that we just read moments ago. What a beautiful statement is, and we're specifically looking at this second stanza today. For the most part, everything about that second stanza is summed up in these two passages. 1 Corinthians 15, which we just looked at, and 2 Timothy 4. It shows us the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And in 2 Timothy 4, it's implicated that the ascension of Christ, who he's seated at the right hand of God, and his return, his imminent return to judge the living and the dead. I think we all here, whether you are a Christian or not, would agree that we live our lives based on certain assumptions, based on certain hopes, goals, ideals about life. Certain things we have in our heart that we believe about about what the world is and where the world is trending that informs everything about what we do. And whether we come up with these assumptions and these ideals and these goals because of something that's been pressed upon us from a generous uh, or a previous generation, or our lives, or, or, or we come up with these ideals and goals in and of ourselves, our lives generally flow from certain convictions that we have about what's happening in the world. And it informs how we live our life right now, in the present. Here's a good example. Nelson Mandela, one of the leaders of the apartheid in South Africa, this is what he said in 1964, which we know is 30 years before the apartheid really begins or happens. This is what he said. He said, I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if needs be, it's an ideal that I am prepared to die for. So for him, the the conviction that Mandela, Mandela had was of a democratic and free society. And it's how he lived his life. This ideal was central to what he wanted to do in his life. And it determined much about how he spent all of his time and all of his energy on an everyday basis, right? 
I heard a pastor friend uh, share a quote from the famous theologian Madonna. Uh, and it, it was something similar to this. This is what she said about her life in a, in a recent interview uh, to, to Vogue magazine. Listen to this. This is profound. I'm, I'm not making fun of Madonna. This is very insightful. This is what she said about her life. She goes, my drive in life comes from the fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of this mediocrity and I discover myself as a very special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. In a way, that's actually what makes Madonna, Madonna. Core to Madonna's understanding of her life was this belief that she, she must prove to be something special. And because of that, everything she did in her life was geared towards that. When she got to the end of her life, she wanted to be said that she was special. And this impacted how she lived and it motivated all of her actions her every day. Now here's some other common struggles that we may have or some other common hopes and ideals that we have. One is uh, pertains to our work. You know, for many of us, we believe that our performance and our success and what we do, our work, is what will ultimately define us. And maybe that's you. You know, and the greatest desire that you have is that people would look at your life at the end of your life and say that you accomplished great things. And specifically great things through the things that you do in your job. And this leads you to live and to breathe your work life. It's really important to you. Maybe that's you. Or, or, or maybe you're one who is more geared towards pleasure and sensuality and experience, which means this life's ultimately about what we experience. So we go to every game. We eat at the nicest restaurants. We save up all year long for the great vacation. And then at the end of the day, what feels most satisfactory to us is that we live life to its fullest and experience all that life has to offer. You want, you want that to be your dying breath. Maybe that's some of you here. Or maybe it's wealth and financial security. For, for, for those who prioritize this, life's ultimately about the financial legacy that you're going to leave your kids. And here you are. Maybe you're at a young age, which is most people here, right? And you're already putting tons of money away into retirement, rightfully so. It's a great thing. Here you are setting up yourself for, for a great retirement and, and also setting your kids up for something great when you pass away. And this may dictate much about how you live your life. It may dictate what your budget is for food. It may dictate what you do on a regular basis, what kind of house you want to buy, all the things. I don't share any of these things to say that they are bad because they're not. All of those are wonderful things. Working hard at your job, enjoying life. Ecclesiastes calls us to do that. Having financial security, setting things up well for your kids, those are all great things to an extent. They're wise. They're fruitful of a, of, a, of a respectable, upright life. However, in and of themselves, they miss the entirety about what life is really about. The two passages that we just read this morning show us the following. It shows us this. In the life of Jesus, we find our lives. In the life of Jesus, we find our lives. In other words, Christianity exists where a person locates all of their dreams, all of their hopes, all of their assumptions and ideals about life in the life of Christ. 1 Corinthians 
15 shows us that Jesus, God, was born. He was crucified. He lived a life. He was crucified. He died, and then he was buried, and then he rose from the grave. What is that? I think it's that. Is it that speaker? Hold on, guys. I'm just going to put this off. That's not it, but... <laughs> so 1 Corinthians 15, it says... He lived, he was born, he was crucified, he died, and he was buried, and then he rose from the grave and ascended to heaven. 2 Timothy 4 shows us that Jesus will ultimately return to judge the living and the dead. He's going to come again in glory and judgment one day. And these two passages combine to give us a comprehensive vision of the life of Christ and the present ministry of Christ, who is at the right hand of God now. And these passages, along with others all throughout the scriptures, time would fail me to account for all of the times the life of Jesus is referenced as the central guiding point of all that we do. All of these passages are the entire sum of the narrative of the Gospels and Acts. They show us everything about the revelation of Jesus. And this is what we find in the revelation of Jesus in these passage, passages. We find the ideals, the hopes, the dreams, the motivations, the goals for how we live our life. The substance, the objectives for our life, the, the nature of how we live as Christians flows from the life of Christ himself. This is what Paul means when he says what he does in 1 Corinthians 15. What he means is that our lives and everything we do as Christians flows from the life of Christ. This is what he's referencing in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. He says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. We've talked about this passage so many times. In which you currently stand in. Which means the life of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, what he did in the world, is what we're presently standing in and looking towards and hoping in and building our life upon. And then it continues and said, by which you are currently being saved. This is the gospel. What Paul is saying here is that the gospel of Jesus, namely the good news of what Jesus accomplished in his life, has become everything to the believer. Everything. There is not a more central reference point for the life of the Christian than the life of Jesus. Everything in the life of the believer, his past, his present, his future, or hear these words when Paul says what he does in Colossians. Colossians 3, verse 4. An incredible, incredible verse which sums up all that I want to say today. Paul, he says, But when Christ, who is your life, appears. Christ is the believer's life. What Paul is saying is, is that for the Christian, Jesus is the substance of life. If your life could be summed up in a word according to Paul, Paul said it would be Christ. Is Christ your life? Is Christ your life? Think about that. Think about what that would mean for Christ to truly become all to you, become your life. Galatians 2, uh, we know this passage well. Consider its implications because we don't wrestle with it enough. Galatians 2, verse 20, it says this, I, Alex, Paul, in the context has been crucified with Christ. Crucified. It, what that means is that I no longer live. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who is living in me because Christ is my life. And the life 
that I now live. Everything that I do right now, every action, every thought, every goal, every ambition, every hope, every ideal, every assumption, every motivation, I live by faith in the Son of God who, who loved me, who gave himself up for me. You know, I think Christianity, I think Christianity exists on this spectrum of Jesus being and increasingly becoming all that our lives are really about. Many of us here, man, you know, we're going to be at different places on that spectrum, you could say. Different, different places as to the depth in which Christ really is our life. However, nonetheless, what this passage shows us in Galatians 2.20 is that to be a Christian at all is to have a fundamental change of heart, at least to an extent, where you truly do embrace Christ as your life. And when I say the life of Christ is my life, what I'm saying is that the totality of life, of his life, the totality of it, the sum of his life, is what ultimately defines everything about who we are. The most central truth that we are about, meaning this, when we wake up in the morning, when we go to work, when we eat, when we rest, when we have a discussion with a friend, just a conversation about any random thing in the world, when we put our kids to sleep at night, the most central truth that we are about in everything that we do is Christ. The life that he lived and its implications for us, the death that he died and its implications for us, his resurrection and the hope and confidence that gives us, the ascension which puts him at the right hand of the God and right hand of God and what that means for how we live now and the hope that he's going to return and judge the living and the dead. The meaning of life for the Christian, the oxygen to our lungs, what animates, what motivates who we are in everything that we do, the central guiding focus of our life is Christ. This is what Paul means in Galatians, Galatians 2.20 when he says, the life he lives, he lives by faith in the Son of God. The life that he's living now. What, he, what he's saying is that what we have embraced about Jesus, his life, who he is as God, the sacrifice that he was for our sin, his death, his resurrection from the grave, which proved death had no power over him, his ascension to the right hand of God, the fact that he will return one day, these are the very truths that inform everything about what we do. Everything about how we do them. And what all these things are ultimately working toward the, but the lie of Christian, uh, of, of our cultural counterfeit Christianity, that man honestly seeps into a lot of what uh, our, our experience of life here in the South is. This lie of, of a cultural counterfeit Christianity is that your life, with its ideals and with its passions and goals and motivations and dreams, is actually separated from your profession of Christ. That these two things actually exist side by side with one another. That's the lie. That your life and all of its details has no correlation to what you say about Christ. But the Jesus of the Bible leaves no room for this type of thinking. Instead, what, what the New Testament would affirm is that to detach the life of Christ and what he did in your life in, in the world from your life in a way that doesn't bear tangible or real fruit, is not real Christianity. It's not. It's foreign to the Bible. It's a counterfeit. 
Authentic, real, biblical Christianity is summed up in Paul's words when he says, Christ is your life. He is your life. He, he takes the place of who you once were. His life actually becomes yours, in a sense. If the life of Jesus does not change every thought, every desire of your heart, every goal of your life, then there's no way that he is God, and therefore Christianity is not worth any of our time. It's not worth it. But in fact, as Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is the one who demands and all of our affection, all of our attention, all of our allegiance. And now our entire lives, because of this, if you have embraced him and believed in him, and I want you to ask yourself that, your lives are now entirely changed, is it? They're changed in this way. This is, this, is how, this is the change. In the person of Christ, we have a real objective truth about who he is that radically informs and transforms who you are. I want to present the case this morning that the Christian life is, is actually a taking on ourselves the very life of Christ. It's actually taking on ourselves the life of Christ for ourselves. His life that he lived in the world is the very life that we adopt as Christians in the world. And what I'm not saying is that we are like Christ and we can live the life that he lived. That's not what I'm saying. He is God. We are not. We cannot do that. What I am saying is that the major details of his life, his death, his resurrection, ascension, and his imminent return is what animates our life and motivates our lives. It's, it's, it's the very motivation, ideals, dreams, and goals of our lives here and now. That's what it means when he says that Christ, that we adopt the life of Christ as ultimate for us. So what I want to do is I want to look on a, on a high level at the major details of the life of Christ. Laid out in this confession that we just saw and that is affirmed in these scriptures that we just read. And I want to show how these details of what Jesus came to do and what his life was, the life of Christ, when we believe and we embrace them in a way that leads to salvation and this eternal hope that we have, it actually leads us to live lives that are centered on the hope that we have in Christ. That, that the virgin birth actually has a, a, uh, an application for you in your life. That it's not just a truth that you profess, but it's a particular way in which now you embrace that for your life. So I want to give us, for, for the rest of our time, I want to give six characteristics of what it means for Christ to become your life. What does that mean for us? And the first is this. You see, in, in our confession, the first thing it says about who Jesus was, it says he was born of the Virgin Mary. The virgin birth means, this is point number one, the virgin birth means you should be dependent upon God in all things. What the virgin birth ultimately means for us is that we needed God to do what we could not do. We needed God to enter into our humanity and undo all the effects of sin in our lives. We needed him to do that. We could not save ourselves. We needed to be saved. Ephesians says that we were dead in our sin and that we had no hope, which means that we, we didn't need a push in the right direction. We didn't need a redirection. We were dead in sin. And Ephesians chapter 2 continues and says we were without God in the world. Without him in the world. So God came to seek and to save the lost. 
God entered into our world. And Jesus was born through the Virgin Mary as the Holy Spirit filled her. And this demonstrates that God came from outside of us. Outside of us. And when we come to receive salvation in his name, it is an alien righteousness in which we receive. It is something outside of us that we receive for ourselves. It's outside, not within us. This is what Jesus being born of a virgin is ultimately really about for you. He could not come from man because as he says in the gospel, he knew what was in man. So God enters into Mary a virgin and Jesus is born through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we understand the gospel in this way, then we understand how much we really do need the presence of God in our lives. The commendable life that has lived to the glory of God, that the New Testament lays before us, this commendable life that we probably are all striving for, is not somewhere deep within us. It's not mustering up the strength for it is outside of us in the person of Christ, and that's why he came. It's outside of us. Christianity is finally coming to grips with this in your life and living every moment of every day dependent upon him. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, it uses that present tense of you are actively being saved. It is a cling to it. It is, it is coming in to, to, to receive the fact that Jesus came to be with us. He came into our humanity. He died a death that we could not die. And there's nothing in us that could accomplish those ultimate purposes. Therefore, the very posture of the Christian life, what it means for Christ to become our life is to live a life of total dependency upon Him. In everything that we do, are you dependent upon Him in that way? Romans 8, verse 8 says this, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot please God. That's why the virgin birth was necessary. Isaiah 41, verse 13, it says this, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. I am the one who is beside you, the one who helps you, the one that you need. Are you dependent upon him in that way? For Christ to become your life means utter and total dependency upon him. Not clinging and having confidence in anything of yourself, but only confidence in Christ. So the virgin birth means you should be dependent upon God in all things too. God living among us, so the scripture says it became flesh. God living among us means you can live a life of openness to God about all things because he totally understands the human struggle. I want you to, I'm going to piece this together in John chapter 1, but I'm going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to piece these two realities together and I want you to consider the magnitude of what it is that we're saying. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. You can turn there if you want. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This is where Mormonism is debunked. The Word was God. So the, the Word, is the, the, the Logos from eternity, was God. It wasn't just alongside of Him. He wasn't created being. He was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Through everything you see here. All things, everything, even the angels, even the enemy, Satan, even all the realms of spiritual, the world, the creation, Yosemite, Yellowstone. Nothing was made 
that was made without him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So what you're seeing here is that Jesus, or the, 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 the word was God. He was the creator. He was the one. He was the I am. He's the one at the beginning. And then John 1, verses 14 through 17, hear this. It says, and this word, the word who was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip down there to verse 17. It says, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So Jesus, who was with God as God, everything came through him. And there was nothing outside of him. Nothing outside of him that was made. That was made. This Jesus, the word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. His transcendence did not leave God distance. His transcendence as creator, as the Holy One, as the one above all things and before all things, did not leave him distant. But instead, he who is so transcendent became man and lived among us, as our statement says. What this means for us is that when we embrace Christ in our lives as the Lord God that he is, that's what Thomas says, Thomas sees him. Thomas sticks his hand in his side and he says, my Lord, my God. That's what it means to embrace Christ. When, when we embrace him for the Lord that he is, we, we embrace someone who intimately knows us and wants to be involved in the details of our lives. That's why he came. Who as God and King and Lord of our lives demands this even. This means you can open up your heart to him. You can open up your life to him because he cares for you and he knows you and your human experience even more than you know it yourself. He forever sympathizes with us in our lives. He understands what we face. And he has chosen to draw near to us by becoming a man who has lived a perfect life on our behalf that we could not live. It doesn't matter what you were told when you were a child. It doesn't matter what you think about what God thinks about you. We look at history and we see the objective reality that he came to be with us. To live with us. That the word was made flesh. Which means the, the, the word became a man. And he dwelt here. And, and because of this. He is forever qualified. As a man and as God. To be the one who we can open up our lives to. With all of its messiness. With all of the suffering. With all of the heartache. <clears throat> the one who looks to Christ. The one who's being saved. 1 Corinthians 15 says is the one who lives in relationship with God every day, at every moment. He welcomes him. He welcomes God, the, the, the man who, who looks to Christ, and Christ is their life, as the scripture says, which is describing salvation. He welcomes Jesus to the dinner table with, your, with, with wife and kids, with friends, with, with uh, co-workers. The one who, who looks to Christ is the one who, who, who is fully dependent upon him as he navigates all these impossible situations that he may find at work. The, the, the one who looks to Christ and Christ has become their life is the one who stops everything that he is doing and prays with his family when they're maybe in an argument about something. The one who looks to Christ in all things, who, who Christ has become their life is the one who turns to him in moments of temptation. Not looking for something in themselves, but turns to him instead of indulging in whatever it is. Because he knows that God is the one who understands what they're going through and is the only one who has the power to overcome it. Is Christ your life? Do you see how in the, 
incarnation of God himself. <clears throat> you have someone who truly can enter into the messy details of your life. I think I can say with confidence that a lot of the perpetual sin you may find in your life, a lot of the regular struggle that at the end of the day, you've been doing it for years and you can't seem to overcome it, a lot of the, those things that are in our lives is because we have not opened us, ourselves up to God. For whatever reason, it might be because of the relationship with your father. It might be because of something someone told you when you were 12. It might be something that you believe about yourself that no one else has told you, but you believe it for some reason. We live in a fallen world. We have not welcomed God to come into those parts of our lives and help us. That's typically the reason why we continue to struggle. So my question to you today, how do you need to open up to him? How do you need to open up to him? What in your life are you here saying, I'm trying to do X, Y, Z on my own, Lord, and I need help? If you'll come before him, he understands. It's the very basis of what Christmas is about. Number three, <clears throat> Jesus crucified, dead, and buried means that you can rest in him because he is your righteousness. Romans 3, verses 22 says this, the righteousness of God is given to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. This is what it says. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Which means if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in him and embrace him for what he did, the life he lived, the crucifixion he faced, the death that he died, that the righteousness of God is actually given to you if you believe in that. So what this is saying is that the righteousness of God in Christ becomes ours. When we believe in Jesus and that he took our unrighteousness to the cross, he faced the wrath and the punishment that we deserved. Like the theologian Madonna said earlier, this was she, she goes, she's afraid that at the end of her life, she would find out that she is not special and that she basically would have not accomplished enough in her life. That's what she says. But Christian, Christianity actually affirms this. Christianity actually says to Madonna, you're starting to get it. None of us have lived a life that can stand before the righteousness of God. Romans says that every mouth will be stopped. Every mouth. What's the greatest, what's the greatest accomplishment? Think about what that is in your, in your head right now that you've ever done. The greatest accomplishment. You take that before the Lord one day on judgment, your mouth will be stopped. But the Christian hope says, though it says we are not worthy of that eternal commendation on Judgment Day, the Christian hope also says that Christ is. And he has given you his righteousness freely as a gift if you embrace him and believe in him. If the Christian life would be summed up by one verb, I think it would be rest. Sum up the Christian life in a verb. It is rest. Because at the end of the day, Jesus crucified, dead, and buried means that you can rest in him as he is your righteousness. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 10 says this, Whoever has entered God's rest 
has also rested from his works as God did from his. What does that mean? It's referencing what he does in, in, in the very beginning chapters of Genesis. God created the world, created all that we see, an incredible creation, more than anything we can understand or imagine. God looked at his creation and he said, this is awesome, I'm done. In the same way, Hebrews is telling us we are just like God in that way. Because God calls us to receive Christ by laying down our agendas, our motives, our pursuits of joy and righteousness and peace, and to find it in Christ and to say, wow, I got nothing to do. I can rest in what Christ has done for me. And when we believe this, this changes the very fabric of your life when you understand it. It changes everything about you because your life in Christ is no longer about proving your worth anymore. Think about that. Think about what motivates you on your day-to-day, -day, in your job, in your relationships, in your activity. Your life in Christ is no longer about proving your worth anymore. Christ is your worth in righteousness. Your life is now about living a God-glorifying life that flows from the very work that God has already done in Christ. It's been decided, done, finished. Nothing else can be added to it. Nothing can take away from it. So you work hard, not because you want to prove to the world that you'll be better than what your family of origin tells about you, or because you subconsciously believe that you're unworthy of the position that God has given you. You clean your house, not because you want accommodation that others are going to give you. You work out and you stay active, not because God says you need to be healthy and fit, Christ is your righteousness. And the Christian life flows from what Christ has accomplished for you through his crucifixion, his death, and his burial when he took on the sins of the world that we might be reconciled to him, to God, and called, not based on our work, but based on Christ's work, the righteousness of God. Jesus crucified, dead, and buried means that you can rest in him because he is our righteousness. But also, to continue, point, I think it's four. Jesus rising on the third day means we can live now with an eternal mindedness in everything that we do. If Jesus rose from the grave, then we will too. Think about that. Sermon done, in, finished. No, I got a lot more to say. This is what Christianity professes, and it is as central to what Christianity is, is about as anything else. Jesus physically rose from the grave, and we will too. If this is true, then everything we do now finally and really does matter. Everything we do now is not temporal and momentary. It's eternal. Everything we do now is not trending towards the moment where we get to retire and lay down our job and live a life of luxury. It's about eternity. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, then yeah, live for the retirement. Live for it. Put all your hope in it. Live for whatever pleases you right now. Whatever you most enjoy, live for it right now if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. Because ultimately, there's nothing really to look forward to. Ultimately, ultimately, death has the final word. But if Christ did rise from the grave, everything is actually about something much bigger than this world offers us right now. Everything is much bigger than what this world offers us. Everything now has an eternal reality to it. Every decision, every thought, every good work 
Every relationship is not just about now, but it's about eternity. Everything, if Jesus rose from the grave, is trending towards the day where he's going to make all things new one day. And we're going to rise with him. We're going to be with him for eternity. And heaven's going to come down to earth. Is your life oriented around eternal realities? Think about that. Are you eternally minded? Do you think about the new heavens and the new earth regularly? Man, what if we had this regular practice in our church where once a week we sat down and we just considered the new heavens and the new earth? We just considered the end of Revelation when every tear is going to be wiped away and every pain is going to be taken away. We just considered that no sickness or death will define us anymore. Not cancer, not disability, not tragic trauma that happens in our life. That's not going to define us. It's going to be Christ and Him crucified and Him resurrected. And we're going to be with Him for eternity. Do you think about that often? Do you think about who He is? Do you think about what's coming for us? Um, a movie that shook me more than probably just about any other movie when I was a kid was the movie Armageddon. Anybody ever seen it? Bruce Willis? It's a defining movie moment for me. And Bruce Willis, he dies this sacrificing, by sacrificing himself around the end. He's on this asteroid. You know, I can stop there. But he's on this asteroid. He gives his life up so that, you know, Ben Affleck can go back and be with Liv Tyler. The world would be amazing. The earth would not be destroyed. It was a really sad moment. I cried. I, no joke, cried. And there are multiple times where I've gone back and I've watched the movie, and honestly, it has a different effect knowing that Bruce Willis dies. Like, you, you, under, you have a different perspective on his character throughout the entirety of the movie. And for another good Bruce Willis reference, the movie Sixth Sense... Anybody not seen the movie Sixth Sense? Anybody not seen it? Do you want to see it? Because I'm about to spoil it. All right. I don't know how I would come back from that if you said no. I have to share it. <laughs> but Bruce Willis, okay? Bruce Willis dies at the beginning of the movie, and he's dead the whole movie, if you've seen it. Okay? So when you find this out at the end... It's a, I mean, it's like blows your mind, right? It's like, what in the world? Nobody saw that coming. But what's so sad is that you really only have one shot in enjoying the movie. Because when you go back and watch it, it reframes everything about how you watch it. And this is what our hope in Christ and his resurrection has ultimately done for us. We know that there's life beyond the grave. We know it because Jesus rose from the grave. And just like Jesus who physically rose... So physical, as we said, that Jesus touched him, stuck his hand in him. We know that we will too, and it reframes everything about our perspective on life. Everything. We will rise and live with God for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Think about that reality. How does that not impact the next words out of your mouth, the next thought in your brain, the next thing you spend your money on, the next conversation you have with your child? How does it not affect Every dynamic of who we are. This is why Jesus says, or why Paul says, Christ is our life. Because he rose from the grave. And we will too. And we're going to be with him for eternity. Isn't that amazing? No, go live for the glory of God. Number five. Jesus seated at the right hand of God. His ascension, he rose from the grave, seated at the right hand of God. Means our lives should be lived as acts of worship and adoration to our King. There's an interesting scene that plays out that I think is very reminiscent of what the Christian life is. 
the very end of Matthew 28, right before the, the Great Commission, which we hear regularly in our church, right? It's, it's a commission we give regularly. He charges his disciples there. But <clears throat> Jesus, in his glory, as he is about to ascend to the right hand of God, it shows this scene of the disciples who fall before him and they worship him. They fall before him and worship him. And then even... Previously, all throughout um, the narratives of the gospel, you have these moments where this figure Jesus, a regular man, has nothing amazing about him. He's, he's, he is as human as you and I. He has regular moments where people fall before his feet and they worship him. They take their greatest possessions they lay before him. They wipe his feet with their hair and tears. When you get to the end of Matthew 28, the disciples falling before him in worship is an appropriate response to a king. It's an appropriate response to a king. Worship and adoration. And the ascension of Jesus means he should be worshipped. He should be revered. He should be loved as the good king that he really is. Because he is reigning above all things. That's why we gather on a regular basis in corporate worship to reorient our minds regularly Jesus is king, and he's reigning above all things. We need that reminder. I need that reminder every single week because I think, here comes Saturday night, and here I am frustrated about a dang football game. I need to come to church on a Sunday morning and be reminded that Jesus is king, that this is what's most impressing in my life, and man, he is worthy of worship. Christianity exists where our eyes are opened to see his wonder, his beauty, and his supremacy as the king that he is, and we naturally respond in worship. We naturally adore him. Christianity is not mustering up the strength to worship him rightfully. This is not the heartbeat of the faith. Christianity begins with a, through, the, through the eyes of the Holy Spirit. You see with clarity the king that he really is, and you worship him. And you bow down before him. You kneel before your maker. The one who has done incredibly more than you could ever ask or imagine. And you live your life in worship. The world sees a teacher or a prophet. We see a king worthy of our life's worship. The world sees someone who puts rules and regulations upon us. We see a king who we gladly listen to. Who we gladly obey because he holds the words of eternal life. To truly embrace Christ. For who he is in the Bible is to live a life of joyful worship and adoration. The last point I'll make today, number six. Six characteristics of what it means that Christ has become our life. Jesus is the returning judge, and that means that we should live with a sense of urgency. Jesus as the returning judge means that we should live with a sense of urgency. Do we really believe and realize what 2 Timothy 4.1 says? Consider what this is saying. And I want to just make this point here. As we hear this, Paul's main idea is to charge people to preach the word, but it's not the most important clause. It's not the most important truth. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus to preach the word. But the most important truth is in this, not the charge, but in what he says about Christ Jesus. And he says this, Jesus is the one who is to judge the living and the dead. And because of this, preach the word. The cross was necessary, and this is where the urgency comes in. The cross was necessary because of the holiness and the righteousness of God. What the cross tells us is that God hates sin. 
If he didn't, he would not be God. And there is even a sense in Romans 1 that God has already actively revealed and is revealing his wrath against sin and ungodliness right now. There, there's a, Paul says it in Romans 1 that, look, right now, the wrath of God is being presently revealed. Maybe, maybe still partially revealed, but, but presently it's being revealed to an extent in the world. That's how Paul wants us to look and see all the evil in the world that's happening around us. There's a, there's a, a, a perspective or a, a, something about what we see in the world right now that is a revelation of the wrath of God. And it's because God hates sin. That's why the cross was necessary. Paul says this, that the wrath of God is coming to those who practice such things. And, and the wrath that maybe they experience now, the judgment that they feel now, the, the, the suffering, the, the torture that is an ungodliness that maybe they encounter in this world, it's kind of a foretaste of what's going to happen on the day of judgment. Everyone is familiar, right, with this guy named Paul Revere. How can you not, Eric? Paul Revere, he rode through the, through the night and he alerted the Americans that the British were coming and attack, right? And there's tons of myth and legend that's not correct around him. But for the sake, let your mind just go wherever it is. And Henry Longfellow, he wrote this poem about this day that Paul Revere, or Paul Revere, um, uh, it's what he did, the, the account of what he did. He wrote a poem that's beautiful. And it honestly gives us a lot of insight into the type of urgent call that we carry now as Christians in the world. This is what he said. So through the night rode Paul Revere, and so through the night went his cry of alarm to every little village and farm. A cry of defiance and not of fear, a voice in the darkness, a knock at the door, and a word that shall echo forevermore. For born on the night, wind of the past, through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will awaken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. In attempt to make Christianity accessible and attractive and something that people can accept, we've tried to avoid some of these dynamics that the Bible makes abundantly clear. 2 Timothy 4 shows us that our ministry is one of urgency like Paul Revere. Because Jesus the King is coming on the clouds and he will judge the living and the dead. And it doesn't have to be a message of fear, but a defiance of the, of the enemies that be. It doesn't have to be a message of, oh no, destruction, but a message of salvation. And this word, as, as Henry Longfellow says about Paul Revere's message, this word, this gospel message that we have, it will echo on throughout eternity forevermore. And people from every tribe and nation will receive it. Our lives are kind of like Paul Revere. We ride in the midnight hour with a word, the gospel truth that's going to echo throughout all the ages. A word that Jesus Christ saves sinners and he repents and that we should repent and believe in him. And this is the gospel call that should be proclaimed and heralded in this midnight hour with an urgency, with a zeal, with a passion, with a love. You know, as I conclude, what I ultimately hope you see today is a vision for what it means for the life of Christ to become our lives. What that means. What, what it means to embrace the life of Christ as our life. Has Christ become your life? If you have a category for Christianity that does not reshape your motives and your ideals and your hopes and dreams, then your Jesus is not big enough and he is not God. And therefore, he has no power to save. But if in Christ you see a Savior King who is more beautiful 
more wonderful than anything you could have imagined, then you can live a life dependent, open, eternally minded in a life of worship and urgency. I want to conclude here as the band comes up, I want to conclude with this passage what we read earlier is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that it would be said by the watching world, by neighboring churches, by every member of our church, that Sola City Church's life is only found in the life of Christ. God, I pray that it would be said by each individual here, my life is Christ. My life is Christ. Lord, take it and shape it and do what you will with it, but my life is all about Christ. I pray that that could be said of this church, Lord. And I pray that we would collectively, in unity, come around, rally around that call. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.